uh, his uncle. If you will, turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 34. You, you may have already memorized it by now. We've read through it as a congregation and, and it's uh, almost in its entirety. We have sung through it, that last song that you heard, uh, Psalm 34, O Taste and See, written by uh, Shane and Shane. And uh, there's a great version of that song. Um, I just wished um, Joseph could have had a choir behind him. The Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir has a version of this song on YouTube. I would encourage you to go watch it. You can worship. I, I just put it on repeat, probably, probably listen to it several thousand times over the last month or so. And uh, a great, great song. And purely taken straight from the Word. That entire song is nothing but Psalm 34. Not in its entirety, but almost. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to check that out. Psalm 34. Uh, I just want to start out by reading not the first verse, but the, what, what we would call the introduction or the pericope of the psalm, which is going to be those words found directly in between verse 1 and the title of the psalm itself. Because we have something here in Psalm 34 that we don't often get in our Bible, uh, especially in the Psalms. And that is, we know pretty much, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, when David wrote this in his life and what events uh, precipitated his writing of this psalm, uh, this song. Because remember, what we're reading out of is the hymn book of, uh, of the church. It's the hymn book of the Old Testament saints. It's the hymn book of the New Testament saints. <clears throat> and Psalm 34 is a psalm of deliverance. David is singing about a time in his life where the Lord delivered him from some pretty difficult situations. But what's interesting about this is the type of situation that David found himself in. So if you look at, um, again, the words printed between the title of the psalm, Taste and See That the Lord is Good, and verse 1, this gives us the context of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. We don't have time this morning to really kind of dive into the backstory of this psalm, so if you'll just give me a minute or so, I'll try to uh, do a Cliff Notes version of what's being talked about here. If you were to go over to 1 Samuel chapter 21, you would read the occasion of which this psalm is talking about. David had found himself in some trouble. Um, in particular with Saul. And if you know anything about the Saul-David dynamic, is that Saul was the king of Israel, uh, not chosen by God, right? <laughs> God had a different choice. But he let the people of Israel choose their own king. And so they chose the best looking, the tallest, the fittest. I mean, they would have, you know, uh, basically done a GQ call of that day to find the guy that most fit the GQ look, and that was the guy that they were going to go with. However, God had chosen already David to be king. And the great thing about the choosing of David is the Bible says, in essence, that God does not look on the outward appearance of man, but God looks at the heart. And the Lord said about David that this is a man after my own heart. David was not a big guy. He, he did not have a great complexion. Uh, he did not have big muscles. 
even though he did great exploits for the Lord, uh, David was quite the ordinary individual. But David has done some really great exploits, right? I mean, we read about him in the Bible, probably his best known at this time exploit is that he has killed the great Goliath, the, the man from Gath, the, you know, extremely tall, extremely big uh, 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 giant. And so once David has killed Goliath, um, David makes the top 40. They start singing songs about David. And matter of fact, there's a hit song that's been written about David. And it's been sung all over Israel. If it was modern day, we would say it was the most downloaded song on iTunes. It's the most listened song on radio. And the song goes something like this. David, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And this infuriates Saul, right? Because how does the poor ruddy kid who is a shepherd, which is a low totem pole, meaningless uh, uh, occupation, how does this guy get to be the most beloved man in all of Israel? And I, Saul, who... You know, I've got the looks, I've got the build, I've got everything that should be praised, that should be sung about, and yet David has his 10,000 songs, and I have, uh, you know, I, I, David has his hit song, and nobody's really singing about me. So Saul is on the warpath, and he's going to get David because he's tired of playing second fiddle to David. And so he is in hot pursuit of David, and David's hiding out. He's Matter of fact, he's... He's hiding out down at the tabernacle. And so just so happens that one of Saul's uh, henchmen finds out that David is down hiding out at the tabernacle. And so word gets back to Saul, hey, David's down here hiding out. And so David finds out that Saul knows where he is. So David has to skip town pretty quick. And he asked the, the, the high priest there, he said, by the way, do you, do you happen to have a weapon I might could take with me? And he says, oh, by the way, we just happen to have that sword, the sword of Goliath. You know, the one that you used to cut off Goliath's head after you killed him out in the field. And so David packs up the, the sword of Goliath. He, he wraps it up and he heads out of town. Now, I don't know about where you would go back in those days, but where David ends up going is probably not the place that I would go. So you're hated by Saul. And, and, and Goliath, who is from the city of Gath, uh, that was his hometown. You, you've killed him, so you've got all the Philistines against you. In particular, no doubt the hometown of, of Goliath, Gath, uh, no doubt had their distaste and hatred for uh, David. But David, when he runs from Saul, goes, according to 1 Samuel chapter 21, to the city of Gath. Now, I don't know how David thought he was going to get away without being known. In particular, the fact that David was carrying Goliath's sword into town. Now, you just have to go back and read the account of Goliath and how big he was and how big his sword was. But let me just put it to you this way. There, you could not have a concealed weapon <laughs> with Goliath's sword. It was going to be obvious who you were and what you had. But David gets to Gath, and of course it doesn't take long for the people of Gath to find out that, hey, David 
the slayer of Goliath here. And so David is apprehended and he is brought before uh, Achish, who is the king there. And Achish wants to interrogate David and find out what's going on with David and maybe even kill David. And all of a sudden, David comes up with this plan. He starts scratching the wall. He starts drooling out of his mouth. He starts acting like a madman. I mean, he acts like he's lost his ever-loving mind. And when Achish, the king, sees this, he's like, don't I got enough crazy people in my life already? That's my loose translation of it, but that's pretty much what he said. He called him a madman. He said, don't we have enough madmen in Gath already? And, and, and here we got David, yet another madman? And he dismisses David from his presence. That's the backstory behind this psalm. Now what's interesting is, is that when you read this psalm, and as we go through it here in just a moment, what's, what's just mind-blowing is that what you read that David writes in the hymn book and sings doesn't seem to really fit with the way the story went down. Because it seems like David is the one doing all the delivering. He's the one that is being deceitful. He's the one that's acting like a madman. This plot that he's come up with to, to break free from the bondage of the king of Achish. But yet he writes a psalm that seems to be totally different than his experience. So let's talk about that this morning. I've entitled the, this morning's sermon the, the TNT of the Delivered. Now, I just shortened that down, TNT, not, not meaning dynamite or explosive as it means uh, in, in our day and time, but TNT meaning testimony and teaching. There's, there's a testimony here that David gives us in the first 10 verses, and then he spends verses 11 through 22 giving us some really good teaching. But let's talk about the first half of this uh, of this great song. Deliverance gives us a testimony. Deliverance gives us a testimony. You, you see, the, the, if, if I was going to sum up this, this hymn in one verse, I would simply say the Lord delivers us for His glory and for the good of others. Now that first half, God delivers us for His glory, is that God delivers us to give us a testimony. Why? Because the Lord wants us to go around testifying, not of our greatness, but of, but, but of God's greatness. Now, it's interesting that you would think that David, because of, uh, of his exploits and, and what he did, you know, his, uh, his um, let's just call it what it was, it was lying. He, he, he lied to Achish. He, he acted in a manner that was deceitful. Uh, to to King uh, to Achish the king. Why? Because he acted like he was out of his mind when he when he really wasn't out of his mind. But here's what David does. David in this moment where he could say, "Look at how ingenious I was. Look at how smart I was. I came up with this great plan to deliver myself out of the hands of my enemies." And David doesn't do that. Matter of fact, David, as we get a little further into this, 
uh, part of this is not only a testimony of God's deliverance, but this is also a teaching that David gives people that, you know what? Um, I had an opportunity to, uh, to do life God's way, and I chose not to. And I'm here to tell you that doing it God's way is much better than doing it my than to do it your way. Listen, because some people could know the story of David and read this psalm and say, you know what? Well, it, it's okay to be deceitful. It's okay to, to do something underhanded or not above board. And, and you get away with it. And, and you prosper in that. And David ultimately is teaching us in some ways that, uh, that the Lord was not work. Even though the Lord delivered him out of this situation... He had to do it in spite of David, not because of David. And what David wants us to realize is, is that, we, that the heart of a true believer is that we want God to work through us, not in spite of us. But David gives us this wonderful testimony, okay? A testimony of deliverance. And every testimony, and David's got other testimonies, uh, other occasions in his life where God delivered him. And so maybe some of what he's writing about not only has to, refers back to this event in 1 Samuel 21, but it's also, also referenced back to other events of deliverance that the Lord has uh, done for David. But let's just talk about three elements of a testimony this morning. Element number one is, is this, is that every true testimony... Every, no, let me rephrase that. Every biblical testimony starts with the worship of God. It starts with the worship of God. I've heard a lot of testimonies in my life. Uh, I know Joseph, when he was, uh, in, in his many years with Teen Challenge, uh, <laughs> he's probably heard a hundred times more testimonies than I have in 30 plus years uh, of preaching. And I've heard some great testimonies, and I've heard some testimonies that really weren't testimonies. And you know why they weren't testimonies? Because the testimony did not focus in on the worship of God. And here, in verses 1 through 3, David uses three verbs to express worship to God. The first verb that he uses is the word bless. Is the word bless. And look what he says. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. David says, I will bless the Lord. He's resolved to do that regardless of his circumstances. David is resolved to do so regardless because the Lord has regarded him. Furthermore, David knows his deliverance comes where? Where does his deliverance come from? The Lord. David was not delivered because he was clever. He was delivered because the Lord kept his covenant. Now something that the screen doesn't do justice, and I'm not sure why, uh, not sure why it doesn't, uh, the, the people that created this program that we use. But if you notice the word Lord there, and on the screen it's capital L, lowercase l-o-r-d, if you look in your actual Bible or look on your device, you will notice that throughout this book, the word LORD is in all caps. Now that's, that's important because you'll see the LORD many times in all caps, and then at other times, you'll see a capital L followed by a lowercase L-O-R-D. 
the, the, the all caps is God's covenant name. And so David again and again and again repeats throughout this psalm, Yahweh, the Lord, the covenant keeper. Why? Because David knows something. David knows that, no, that just because he was clever in his actions, that it wasn't his cleverness that delivered him from the king of Achish, or King Achish. He was delivered because God kept his covenant. God kept his covenant, which meant that God kept his word. But notice what David also says. He says, I will bless the Lord, but he says, I'm going to do it at all times. Why? Because this covenant-keeping God deserves a monopoly on our praise. Can I just ask you a quick question this morning? What has a monopoly on your praise? What, 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 do, you, what do you praise? What do you bless? What do you give? What do you ascribe worth to? Instagram post, Facebook post, Twitter, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, job, finances. What is it in your life that has a monopoly on your praise? Just as David was delivered by the Lord's mercy, not his manipulation, we too have experienced likewise, and therefore praise is never seasonable is never seasonable, but continual. You know, you know it's, it's interesting that some of us need to... <laughs> some of us get so focused on the here and now, that what's going on in our life, that we almost become... It's like we experience amnesia about all that the Lord has done in our life. Listen... God has done so much in your life that no matter if you think He's doing anything in your life right now worthy of praise, there's enough inventory for you to praise Him continually. Hmm? Anybody got an inventory of praise this morning? Listen, if the Lord cut the spigot off and said, I'm not going to do anything for you anymore you still have a lifetime of praise to give Him. A lifetime of praise. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I love that because praise is a mouth activity. It's verbal. It requires speech. You can't stand there with your arms folded and your mouth closed. But also there's something that, that, that just kind of jumped off the page at me, is that there's a contrast in verse 1, and real quick, look at these two verses. When we get down to verse 13 and 15, where, where he kind of goes into teaching mode, he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Uh, down in verse 13, listen, how do you keep your tongue, how do you achieve such a monumental task? of keeping your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Because what does James say? James says, if you can bridle your tongue, you can do what? You control the whole body. Can I, can I propose something to you this morning? Continual praise keeps one's tongue from evil and lips from speaking deceit. Because if you're in continual praise, you don't have time to do any speaking evil or deceit. 
A mouthful of continuous praise swallows up in joy the bitterness of life's affliction. You see, Jesus is on His way to the cross and He sings a song. Paul and Silas are in a Philippian jail and yet they're singing at the midnight hour. You see, this is what we're called to as Christians. No matter what our circumstances is, no matter what life is thrown our way, no matter what position we find ourselves in at this moment, we always have a reason to praise. And it must be done out loud. It must be done out loud. It must be done out loud. Can I tell you something? Worship is not complete until it's spoken. Worship is not complete until it's spoken. Some of y'all, some of us have gone on great trips and had great experiences, but that trip and that experience is not complete until we tell somebody about it. That's what Facebook does. That's all it does. It completes the praise. Because y'all are out there having all kinds of experiences, and you whoop that phone out, it's like, picture, picture, caption, picture, caption. What are you trying to do? Woo, this is a great moment. Picture, express the praise, complete the praise, complete the praise, complete the praise. Why? Because it's not complete until you share it with somebody else. Why? Because praise is meant to be done that way. Well, let me move on. Boast. The second verb is boast. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Okay? Scripture teaches us to abstain from boasting except when it's in the Lord. Here we are encouraged to indulge in boasting. This boasting is no uh, mere tongue bragging. David says what? Not my tongue boasts, but my soul boasts in the Lord. A true testimony makes its boast in the Lord, not in sin or themselves. And listen, if you, got, if you hear a testimony that centers on how utterly sinful that person was, and that makes up the vast majority of the testimony, it's not a testimony. It might be a testimony of the devil, but it's not a testimony of the Lord. Why? Because the soul doesn't want to boast in sin. The soul wants to boast in the Lord. David is not boasting in, in, in what he did. He's boasting in the Lord. It should be noted that David uses that capital, that capital L-O-R-D 16 times in 22 verses. David is making it clear that it's the, the Lord who has delivered them. And listen, true boasting in the Lord makes other people glad. I mean, that's how you know a testimony is true, because if you're part of the fellowship of the, of the humble, then you, you know humility when you hear it. And there's nothing more beautiful than a testimony filled with humility. But let me tell you something that also that worship does, okay? True testimony is, is rooted in worship. It's centered on worship. Guess what it does? It not only blesses, it not only boasts the Lord, but it bids other people to come on and get, get, it, get in on this. Why? Because you want that praise to be complete. You want other people to come and join in on that. I, I, you know, 
I don't, I don't do a lot of, I mean, I don't do a lot of posting on social media. I, I do a little bit of perusing of social media just to kind of keep up on what you folks are talking about. Because I'm amazed at what y'all put on that y'all are doing and up to and thinking about. It's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. But here's what I have noticed. Going back to my little illustration earlier, you're somewhere on a trip and you're like snapping pictures and putting a little caption there about, you know, what's going on in your experience. And then what happens? People start commenting. Oh, I've been there. Blah, blah, blah. This is my experience. Or, hey, I've been there. Did you go here and experience this? And then all of a sudden, you get this, you get this whole string of information that begins to develop as other people join in and share when they were there, and what they experienced. And guess what begins to happen? All of a sudden, there's this little community that forms in this thread of information where people are, are blessing and boasting in their experience, and it just makes everybody's experience even greater that they experience. Why? Because it kind of, those that w- weren't there when you were there are kind of taken back to being there, and they experience that all, you know, they experience that once again. And so that's what true worship does is that true worship gets to verse three and it says, Hey, come magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Exaltation wants others to exalt with them. They want other people to join their voices. They want to magnify the Lord. Why? Because praise cannot remain private. Private praise, if you're, pra- listen, if you're praising God in private, the only thing that does is it provokes you to public praise. Hmm? Anybody in here had one of those weeks where you're praising the Lord and you were singing and, man, you were just having one of those great, phenomenal spiritual weeks and you just couldn't get to wait to church on, I mean, you couldn't wait to get to church on Sunday. Why? Because you were ready to sing. I suspect that that's probably why we have such a difficulty coming in and getting in worship mode is because we haven't been in worship mode during the week. This is just simply a place where we get to come and and publicly join our voices and say to each other by our singing, come, let's magnify the Lord together. Why? Because our, our world has a very small picture of who God is. Matter of fact, most people look at God through a microscope. That is, they're trying to take something that's really small and make it bigger. But that's not the kind of magnifying God wants us to do. He wants us to magnify Him like a telescope. God is big, huge. He's just like the sun, and we get, a, we get a telescope, and we can look out there, and we can start getting some kind of picture or idea of how great the sun is, of how great Mars is, of how great these other planets are, and how really small we are. And that's what we do in worship. We're not trying to make a small God look big. We're trying to bring a big, huge, infinite God into view for human beings to get some perspective of and say, wow. Look how great this God is. Look how magnificent He is. This is the God worthy of worship and magnification. You see, the church is not in danger of exaggerating God's greatness. We're guilty of what I would call microscopic praise. Don't ever think that we get too close to over-exaggerating who God is. 
Well, I'm going to have to do some adjustment here because I'm fast running out of time. And I could go on and on this morning. David, a testimony worships God. A testimony also does something. It talks about the works of God. It talks about the works of God. David says in verse 4 um, that I sought the Lord and He answered me. God works through our prayers. That's how He works. One of the ways He works. He works through our prayers. David said, I sought the Lord. And His actions... David's confession, I sought the Lord, and his actions, I acted like a lunatic, seemed to contradict each other. How can his confession and conduct both be true when they appear to be a contradiction? Well, Spurgeon said this about, about this particular verse. He said, David's poor, limping prayer had an acceptance and brought him help. This knowledge gave him more reason for celebrating the abounding mercy of the Lord. There's no doubt that David, in the, the duplicity of his life, taking matters into his own hands and yet praying at the same... Anybody in here like that? Anybody in here praying and then just trying to take matters into your own hand at the same time? Lord, I need your help! Lord, let me get over here and do something. Lord, I need your help! Five seconds, I, I can't wait any longer, Lord. i got to get over here and do something. That's what I mean by duplicity. <laughs> I, I think that's where David was. <laughs> Lord, I'm about to start drooling if you don't do something. I'm going to start scratching a wall acting like a madman if you don't do something. Lord, I need your help. Listen. There are times, just like Spurgeon said, is that God takes our poor, limping prayer and He brings us help. He brings us help. And if you're a part of the fellowship of poor, limping prayers, know this. God has not abandoned you. God has not turned a deaf ear to that poor prayer. Does he, does he want us to come to Him with a prayer of faith? Believing that He will do what He said He would do? Absolutely. But God is not hindered by poor limping prayers. He works through prayer. Even poor praying. But also, He works through our posture. What do I mean by that? In verse 5, David says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their face shall never be ashamed. What does David mean by that? Well, the important word there is look. Those who look. That's the posture of looking. And I'm going I'm, I'm to give you just a couple of things here, and then we're going to close. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a, a, a detour here. We may not think that looking is altogether that important. But what you look at is important. What you look at is important.
I guarantee you, if you did a self-evaluation, what you would learn this morning is that much of who you are, much of the way you dress, has a lot to do with what you look at. What you stare at. What you put your gaze on. I guarantee you, if teenagers, especially you, because, I mean, y'all may be more guilty of this. Some adults, I see it a lot in adults too, but I don't know. Teens worry me to an extent. I see a lot of this. Just imagine this is an iPhone, okay? And this. Y'all know what that is, right? Y'all know what that is, right? Or maybe it's this or this. And it's pictures and it's videos. It may be 15-second videos. TikTok. I know y'all watch TikTok. I'm not saying anything bad about TikTok. Or could be adults on YouTube or whatever it might be. But listen, we look at that and what we look at begins to shape the way we think. You, you may not realize that, but your brain is being rewired. It really is. You want to sit down and talk about it? I'd love to sit down and talk about the science of it. It is rewiring your brain. Adults, you too. You're not beyond the rewiring. And there's a reason why the Bible says, look to Him. Why? Because those who look to Him, what does it say? They are what? They're what? Radiant. And you say, well, what does that mean? Like they got a glow? They're like they've been in the tanning bed too long? I mean, they, I mean, what does that mean? What does radiant mean? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that radiant means, is code word for those who look to Him are changed. They're changed. What are they changed to? Exactly what they're looking at. What are you changed to? Exactly what you're looking at. And guess what? And when you look at that, your face shall never be ashamed. You see, God works through people who look to Him and look at Him. Real quick, I'll prove it to you. Two verses. Exodus 14, 13. They're coming through the Red Sea. They get through. They're on the other side. They're looking back. The walls are still up. The walls of water are still up. That wind's still blowing. Here comes Pharaoh's army down into the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, the people of God start to panic. And they're like, is he just going to let them come on through and get us? And then once the last soldier comes down into the Red Sea, the, the walls close in and they collapse on top of them and the entire army is drowned. And then Miriam and her little band of worship leaders, they get the tambourines out and they start tapping on the tambourine and they start you know, doing a little step here and there. They got their own little dance move back in Egypt in those days that, you know, that they had learned. But they started praising the Lord and they started singing this song of deliverance. And we're going to pick up in the song right here in Exodus 14. And Moses said, to the people, fear not. Fear not. Stand firm. And do what? See the salvation of the Lord, 
which he will work for you today. And they stand and they see the work of the Lord and then they just break out into worship. That's what follows worship. It's actually Exodus 15 where the song appears. And they just break out. Miriam and her band of worship, le- uh, worship leaders just begin to sing. Listen. Looking to the Lord is not something that's easy. It is something that's hard. Why? Because it requires you to stop and to turn yourself from looking at, at images that will wire you in a way that will wire you away from God to start looking at that which will wire you to always look at God. That didn't even make the notes. Let's say that to you one more time. Whatever you're looking at, most of it, the majority of it, is going to wire you up to look away from God Or, if you're looking at what the Lord says to look at, that's the only thing that can wire you up to look at God. And David would tell us in this psalm that unless you look to God, you don't, have, you don't stand a chance. You just don't stand a chance. Joseph, you will, come on. Listen to me this morning. We've got to get this through our heads. Christians, listen. What are you looking at this morning? Some of of us in this room, excuse me, we can't praise God. We we haven't been able to sing a song this morning. We We haven't sung in weeks. We haven't blessed the Lord. We we haven't boasted in the Lord. Our soul from deep down within us isn't welling up with with expressive praise to God. We can't even even get some praise across our lips. It's all negativity. It's all down in the dumps. It's all woe is me. It's all when's the Lord going to do something for me. And it's just on and on and on. Why? Because I can tell you why. It's because a lot of it has to do with what you've been looking at. I don't know who this is for this morning, but this is either for all of us or some of us or maybe just one of us. Because we're not supposed to be stopping right here. And that's, that's, not, that's not even the, 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 the central aspect and point of the whole sermon this morning. But no doubt, this is where we need to land and, and, and end this morning. And some of us wonder why our thinking's not straight. Some of us why, wonder why we can't get on the same page with the Lord. Some of us, we, we're wondered why we're confused about faith and life and how God works in life. It's because we better start doing what David said to do. And that is, we, we better start looking to Him. And some of us aren't very radiant. Some of us don't have a real good testimony. Some of us call ourselves Christians. But when we start coming around other people, they start heading the other way. Some of us sometimes look in the mirror and we wonder if we're we're really even a Christian at all. 
Because there's no radiance about us. Where, where is that abundant life that the Bible promises? Well, what are you looking at? Are you looking at the Word? Are you looking at Christ? Is He part of your meditations? And, and, and is, he, is He a part of what you think about? Or, are you, or, 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 or what are you thinking about? Are you thinking about your problems? Are you thinking about the kids at school that don't like you? Are you thinking about why you didn't get likes on your Instagram post or your TikTok post or whatever it might be? What is wiring your life? It's whatever you're looking at this morning. And Jesus says, look to me. This is, the, this is the verse right here. Look at this. Look at this verse. I love this verse. Look to me and be saved. Not only be saved from sin, not only be saved from hell, but as a Christian daily to be saved from everything that makes from all the pressures of the world that, 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 that comes against you to make you turn your back on God. You just don't need saving today. Yes, you need to be saved from the penalty of sin, but God is still saving us daily from the power of sin. And the only way He's going to save us daily from the power of sin is we must look to Him and be saved. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. I very, very rarely do what I'm about to do. But I very rarely find myself in this situation. Joseph's going to sing a song in a moment. You, you're not going to know this song. But it's a song that he wrote. And it's a song that does what verse 8 asks us to do. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not that He might be good, but that He is good. I can tell you this morning, the Lord is good. He's real good. <laughs> He's better than good. I wish we had a word better than good. But listen, I know the testimony of so many people in this room, people that testify to know the Lord. And you're who I'm talking to right now at this moment. You've tasted the Lord. You know that He is good. But right now, you're in a season, you're in a spell where your heart is not fully convinced. And when I, and, and when I began to speak about, and the Scripture began to speak about those who look at the Lord are radiant. You knew right then, that's part of my problem. I'm not looking at the Lord. I'm looking at everything else but the Lord. I may gaze on the Lord, but... I may glance at the Lord, but I gaze at Goliath. So this morning, this is what I don't often ask people to do. I don't think this is one of those situations where just sitting in your seat and, and praying is... I think we're going to have to take a step this morning. 
And I'm going to ask, and I'm going to ask you if you're physically able, and the Lord's speaking to your heart. Maybe an old-fashioned altar is exactly where you need to find yourself. On your knees, in a posture of humility before the Lord. Confessing to the Lord what He already knows. That He's not the problem, it's you. You're, You're the one that's been sinning. He has been faithful. You're the one that's been looking away. He's the one that's lingering right there every second of your life. He is is there. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. And He is just waiting for you to look at Him. And do exactly what this psalm says. And cry out to Him. And say, Lord, turn my eyes from evil things. Turn my eyes back to You. Turn my heart back to You. Because I know you're good. And then lastly, you don't know Christ as Savior. You've never looked at Him for salvation. This morning, He just says simply to you, look to me, sinner. And just admit that that's what you are, a sinner. And admit that I'm the only person that can do anything about your sin. And ask Him, say, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Save me from my sin and make me yours. If you'll do that, say something like that, and you'll say that 